0: On today's Money with Friends, an epic change in the credit scores that are used to vet many US mortgages. We'll talk about how the new rules would impact your ability to get a mortgage at the best rate. And all those ads for back-to-school shopping and fall sales are on your mind. We've got a great story on how to trick yourself into shopping a little less. Best of all, and this is a big one, we have our friend Chad Coach Carson back from his adventures in Ecuador co-hosting with us today. That and so much more coming up on this edition of Money with Friends. Welcome to Money with Friends. I'm Bobby Rebell, host of the Financial Grown-Up Podcast, coming to you from my very grown-up kitchen in New York City.
1: And I'm Chad Carson. I'm back from Ecuador in my cozy little corner of Clemson, South Carolina.
0: We take the headlines from the financial praise that you guys are all buzzing about and we use them as a foundation to share money insights and specific ways we can all get better with our money. We wrap it all up with one big idea to set us all up for success. And most of all, as you can see with Chad here, we do it all with our friends. Um, And Chad is a real estate and financial independence guru. So we're going to be talking a lot about the real estate market today. This show, by the way, is taped live in front of a Facebook audience. Their comments are part of the show as well. For more information on how to be part of the audience, check out our schedule at moneywithfriendspodcast.com. You can also get links to the articles that we talk about and see bios and more information about our cast of Money Friend co-hosts like Chad. This episode of Money with Friends is sponsored by Tiller, your financial life in a spreadsheet automatically updated each day. Go to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Tiller for a free trial and to support the show. Chad, we're so happy to have you back from Ecuador.
1: Thank you, Bobby. It's great to be back. And
0: Um, your children are now completely fluent in Spanish and making fun of your accent.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they're pretty good. They, They... it's funny. We were staying at Cuenca, Ecuador, and they had this this particular accent. Everybody, every place has their accent. And they speak with this, you know, sort of this of accent. And when I try to we we've been trying to speak at the dinner table in Spanish, kind of keep it going. And it's constantly like they I'll say something like, Papa, no, no, no. They wag their finger at me and correct me. And I have to admit it, I love it. It's like one of the one times getting corrected at the dinner table is actually a good thing. So I enjoy that.
0: Well, we're glad you're back, though, in the U.S. and back in your business of real estate investing. We have a story that you're really going to have. I know you have some strong opinions about this. Before we get to the first headline, I should say, let's toss it to one of our friends.
1: This is Andy from Derby, Vermont. Friends, check. Money, check. Friends with money, let's do this.
0: All right, Chad, you're up first.
1: Great. So our first headline is Fannie and Freddie, that's Fannie and Freddie Mac, are are going to consider alternatives to FICO scores. So it's really interesting. It says one firm's dominance over the credit score used to vet many U.S. mortgages is getting a shakeup. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the two mortgage finance firms that back nearly half of U.S. mortgages, will have to consider credit score alternatives. To the Fair Isaac uh, Corporation or FICO score when determining a mortgage applicant's credit creditworthiness, under a new rule issued on Tuesday by the mortgage finance giant's federal overseer.
0: And I just want to say this is by Andrew Ackerman in the Wall Street Journal.
1: Thank you. <laughs> so I have a couple other uh, quotes to read from the from the article, but it is from my perspective. So I'm not an expert on credit scores, but I, as a real estate investor, there's a couple key points where credit scores and mortgage applications affect us a lot. And one of those is our tenants. So we, every time we have a tenant, we have a credit score check and that's just part of the application process. And that's pretty common in the landlording industry. And the other part of that is when we're selling a property, um, having a bigger pool of people who can buy our properties is helpful as well. And so I, I From my standpoint, I think it's interesting on a couple angles. I think I think it's going to be helpful for tenants because you know I've had a lot of experience with uh, many different tenants, and one of the challenges I think people have, and a lot of people, if people who have good credit might not realize this, is that there are people who are outside of the traditional credit market. And I forget the term, they use this term in the article, but I think it's the uncredited or the unbanked, you know, things like that's, that's two different terms. And so there's people who are left out because they don't fit into the traditional buying patterns. They don't use credit the traditional way. And so part of this movement, the way I see it, is expanding the pool of people, of, of the, expanding the, the pool of information they're using to judge somebody by their credit worthiness. So traditionally, you have your credit card accounts, your mortgage accounts, and they, there's other factors they put in. But what, what in the article it talks about is expanding that to include perhaps other scoring systems that might include things like utility payments, uh, might include some of your Education patterns, different. So there's the, the technology has expanded so much that it's able it's able to include those kind of things in an algorithm. And from the positive side of that, it might include in, increase the pool of people who can qualify for mortgages, who can qualify for uh, leasing. In my case, and so I think that's a it could be a positive move long run. Although I'm sure there'll be some there'll be some shake up and some difficulties in the short run.
0: Right. Because some scores, you know, don't include, for example, if somebody hasn't used credit in more than six months, that will negatively impact a FICO score, according to this article. But in fact, they might not have done anything that really merits that.
1: Right. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, if nothing else, shaking it up and, and rethinking it, and particularly from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they're, they're not the only people who check credit, but in the mortgage world, those are the giants who buy most of the mortgages in the, in the United States. And so when they change their policy and when the federal regulators require them to change it, it sort of has a trickle-down effect around the entire economy. And so you might see some changes in other places as well, other than just the mortgage market.
0: All right, let's read a little bit more of the piece.
1: All right, so uh, many non-bank lenders who approve mortgages to individuals and initiate the bulk of mortgage dollars issued in the U.S. have asked for the ability to use a credit score provided by Vantage <laughs> Score. So Vantage Score is a um, different company, basically, or a different group of companies than the FICO score. Um, credit scores helped determine who gets a mortgage and on what terms. They played a role in the last housing boom and bust as lenders lowered credit score requirements, extending hundreds of billions of dollars of mortgages to subprime borrowers, creating a crushing number of defaults. And after the financial crisis, lenders tightened requirements for potential homebuyers. They required higher credit scores that, that reduced the number of people who qualified for a mortgage. So I, I thought that was an important point because one of the kind of automatic reactions a lot of people might have on listening to this headline is, "Hey, are we just like reducing the credit score requirement? Is this just a are we just revisiting history here? Do we not remember that in 2008 and nine, credit scores were lowered for a lot of mortgages? We had a lot of subprime mortgages, and that was pretty much the initiation of the entire Fed credit, uh, credit crisis." And so I, I think that is something that regulators, I'm sure, have on their mind, um, but it's something to be aware of. And I, I think done well, expanding credit doesn't necessarily have to be that. And I just know that from experience. I just know there's been renters of mine who didn't fit into a traditional credit model yet who paid me for five years on time and who are some of my best tenants. So I, I know kind of anecdotally, there are people out there who are not fitting in with some of the traditional banking system and so and just aren't the models aren't fitting them. And so I think done well, expanding it can be done without reducing your reducing the quality of the, the loans you're giving because that would be a big concern of mine as well.
0: Right and someone I'm someone that's not as close to this issue as you are being you know a specialist in that in the housing market in real estate. it makes me wonder learning from this that there is really only one score being used when determining um your mortgage alternatives and how qualified you are for that mortgage i mean that kind of goes against our spirit of competition here in this country. I mean, how yeah. do we get that way that there's no wiggle room or just different opinions? I mean, both can be strict, but maybe use different variables, different right. metrics to determine someone's credit worthiness. It's more interesting to me that we even are in this situation right. where there would be any resistance to having more information because you can still use the FICO score. You're just getting an additional piece of information.
1: Exactly right. Yeah. And I, I have no idea how that, that happened. That'd be an interesting history dig to figure out where, the, where that became the only one that would, people were using. But um, I've actually just really quick anecdote. I was actually in Ecuador. I have a really good friend down there who is starting a business providing alternative credit scores with using people's smartphones. Right. They they look at the patterns that um, that they use like where they shop things they do and it's a little scary on the privacy side maybe a little but but basically for a much lower cost they're looking at alternative behaviors and it's very much correlated with fi- with FICA scores so I guess the point there is just that using technology and using alternative forms of gathering information has a precedent I, I think it's it's a movement that we're we're going to see more and more and particularly uh, you know that not everybody uses credit reporting kind of tools the same way you know so people don't use credit cards at all some people don't um, borrow money they use but they do pay their utility bills and they pay other things on time so I think that's a, a change that's pretty this, this that could be helpful for a lot of people
0: well it'll be interesting to see if this happens if Fair Isaac which has the FICO score makes some kind of adjustment maybe to their score or maybe creating other scores might be an interesting idea so you have the FICO score but maybe fair Isaac comes with up with alternative metrics that people can use as well. Because as you pointed out, the truth is these housing regulatory agencies, Freddie May and Fannie Mac, if they're not on board, realistically, it's very hard to get buy-in in the right. overall broader industry. So it's, you can't just kind of do what you want if you wanna be able to have a viable financial product to then sell.
1: Exactly, yeah, it starts with Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. They're the, they're the giants for sure in that industry.
0: And just a reminder, we taped this uh, Money with Friends in front of a live Facebook audience. So I want to give a quick shout out to some of the folks that are watching along with this taping and who, of course, um, we take your comments and your questions. So hey, Janine, nice to see you here. Hi, Melissa. Thank you for joining us on this taping. Um, Chad, before we wrap up the story, I do want to just add one point, And that is that um, the thin credit files and the whole idea of that. Does that make, in your opinion, does it make it less predictive of scores and riskier loans? Because that's something that is a concern that they cite in the article.
1: Yeah. And this goes back to me not being a credit score expert. I mean, I'm sure the, the people at FICO and have, have done this for a long time. I'm sure there's reasons they didn't include some of these alternatives. So that that's going to be an argument between the people who are like experts and regulators there. But I, I think I go back to my prior comment that it doesn't have to be just one piece of information, like for, for example, if somebody hasn't used their credit for six months, maybe we look at a series of alternative pieces of information. Like maybe that, that one says, all right, we're not sure if their credit's really good. They're not using much credit. Let's now look at these four or five other alternatives that could prove that they really pay their bills on time. Cause that's at the end of the day, that's really what this is. You know, models are not reality. They're just, they're supposed to be predicting reality. And I, th- I think all this is, is a trend to try to increase the accuracy of our of our models. And, and if nothing else, technology needs to help us get better information. And so I, th- I think if, if we do that, that's a positive trend. Um, I'm, you know, exactly what that looks like and how these things play out will be interesting to see. But I think that could be that bigger trend of more information using technology could be positive.
0: Very well said. Let's just take one quick comment before we get to our takeaways. We have Dylan here with us and he says, it sounds like credit companies are looking for new data to collect and sell since more and more are freezing their credit and being more protective with the typical data collected. What do you think about that, Chad?
1: Yeah, uh, it's a good comment about freezing credit because I, I personally, after getting, you know, I was on the list of Equifax, and I was pretty much, I'm like, I assume my credit score is out there, my social security number is out there, so I have my credit frozen all the time, and and I, that that's an interesting comment, Dale. Maybe it is part of that is the. Traditional scores might be less viable, or maybe they're just more difficult, so maybe there's alternatives that can be predictive without having to do that. And I'll go back to my anecdotal example. This may not, this may or may not be what you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac use, but if you can, if, for example, you could look at your, um, your your smartphone and have ten series of data on your smartphone that show, hey, this person shops at this store, they do this thing. And if those two correlate with a good credit score, which sounds kind of weird, but they, that's, that's what they're studying right now, then that would be an alternative, but you have to unfreeze your credit score and get your identity hacked and things like that. So, um, that's probably part of it. And then selling data, Dylan's the other thing, you know, I know that's a big industry behind the scenes when you get spam mail and when you get, you know, how how do they know that I just refinanced my mortgage and now I'm getting 10 other applications for credit cards like that. That stuff happens a lot and I'm sure that's a really big industry with a lot of money behind it.
0: That's a really good point because now, you know, yields, we're, we're talking about the inverted yield curve that happened recently. And by the time this is being taped in advance, so maybe in a few days it may or may not still be inverted, But the market is, the credit market is really in quite a shakeup and you may see a big rush of people coming to refinance or maybe finally get mortgages because rates are just so staggeringly low. Mm -hmm. Will this, you know, what data will they know when you, when you enter a search, you know, what mortgage rate can I get for this house I'm looking at? Right. You could really get a barrage of, uh. Wonderful opportunities. Liz.
1: Yeah. And that's happening already. I know um, I've, I'm in the real estate industry and Zillow is a big data company and they, you know they provide real estate information, but they have businesses now on the back end of Zillow that know exactly when you are thinking about selling your house, for example, because of your behavior and how you've clicked on Zillow. They know, hey, Bobby's about to sell her. Her house. Let's let's send, Let's give her a call or a message or a letter. Um, that's the way. That's the way data is going now, for better or worse. You know, like privacy issues, all that. That's that's where we are, and that companies are looking for alternative ways to sell you stuff, which might be a lead into our other our other article here. But that's that's the kind of thing. Whether it's refinancing a mortgage, selling your house, there are companies scrambling to figure out using d- new data to to help sell us stuff.
0: All right, let's do takeaways. You want to go first or second,
1: Chad? Second, if you don't mind. Yeah, I want All to hear right. what you
0: <laughs> Well, mine is short and sweet. My takeaway from this article is, the more the merrier. Why not have more sources to measure the risk of a bar, I don't see any real downside here.
1: Yeah, I think my takeaway, you know, for better or worse, technology is changing everything. I mean, I, I think we've seen that. There's been in, whole industries have been toppled. there have been, you know, the the media industry, the the book industry, and I, I think we're just seeing this in the credit industry. Just sort of part of the pattern, and that loan underwriting and getting loans is technology is changing the fundamental way we do things and. That's going to have issues, privacy issues, but that's also going to have potentially expanding the number of people who can borrow money. So it's like everything else, like technology, good or bad. I'm not sure I can answer that one way or the other, but it is absolutely kind of changing and shaking things up.
0: And it is the reality. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to our next story. And this one. Strikes to the heart of so many of us at this time of year because we are marketed to so much. Like you said, we click in a few keywords searching for something and they know, they know (laughs) to come after us.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) All right. This headline comes from New York Magazine. It is by Charlotte Cowles. How to trick yourself into shopping less. And it is in the form first of a question. So I'm just going to read part of that. I spend a lot of time on Instagram, partly because it's fun, but also for work. I'm in marketing, so I have to stay on top of social media for my job. The problem is that I'm also using it to shop, and I need to rein it in. I like a lot of stuff I buy, but I know I don't need it, and I definitely cannot afford it. Today, I spent $200 on new shirts during a work meeting because I just happened to pick up my phone, and it took about 30 seconds. How can I make myself stop? All right. So the answer starts with, there is a perverse pleasure in having Instagram serve up exactly what you want before you even know you want it. And Chad, you and I know this very well. We were just <laughs> yes. talking about that. The downside is that you're predictable, easily pigeonholed as a sucker for, say, neroli candles in minimalist packaging. <laughs> yes, the upside is for more powerful. It is soothing, portable echo chamber of your own taste, only with better lighting, and more possibility where you can shop whenever you feel like it. And even when you don't, all right, one survey here, skipping forward a bit found 57% of millennials spent money. They hadn't planned to spend because they came across new products on social media. Our lizard brains are in general, very bad at resisting temptation, especially when the bait is repetitive and easily accessible. Of course, the most logical solution would be to quit Instagram entirely, but it seems like that's not realistic for you. He's referring to this woman who works in marketing. Instead, you want to stop spending money on it or at least spend less money. To figure out what you can do, she called the psychologist, Adam Alter, who's a professor of marketing at NYU's Stern School of Business and the author of Irresistible, which looks at why so many people are addicted to online behavior, shopping, and social media among them. He explained that part of what makes Instagram dangerous for your wallet is that it grooms you to want stuff. Quote, you're seeing the top 1% of interesting people doing the top 1% of the most interesting things in their lives. And that puts you in an aspirational mindset that leads you to shop for betterment. Instagram also lulls you into a mental state where spending money may not seem like such a big deal. And they go on to, you know, basically compare it to gambling, which doesn't surprise me. (laughs) Let's get forward to some solutions, my friends. The good news, knowing your weakness makes you better equipped to resist. Think of Odysseus tying himself to a ship when he sailed past the sirens. You have to anticipate your weakness because once you're in the middle of one, you are probably too far gone. One way to buffer between Instagram and your bank account is to disconnect all payment methods from your phone. And I'm interested, by the way, to see what our live Facebook audience has to say about stopping yourself from shopping. So one way, disconnect your bank account from your phone or maybe from your computer. Having to manually type in your credit card number whenever you buy something is annoying. And that is the point you want to increase the pain of paying a term used in behavioral economics to describe the uncomfortable moment when you hand over money to buy something and perhaps question it's worth. What do you think, Chad?
1: Yeah, uh, so much to talk about here. And that's, (laughs) it it really, it reminded me of a, I'm not sure if you've read this book, Sapiens by uh, Yuval Noah Harari. It was a really popular book last year. That was one of my favorites of the year, but, um, in that book, it was kind of a history of humankind and what how we what it means to be human. But one of the ideas was that going forward, that in like the 21st century, you know, the, it's a kind of a battle of uh, algorithms or computer programs. The, the computer program in our head versus the computer program in social media and all these thousands of smart engineers at Instagram and Facebook who are trying to hack our brains. That's essentially kind of sounds scary, but that's really what their job is: is they want us to you know, feel good about ourselves or feel bad about ourselves because we're comparing it to others and, and then cause us to do, to do something. Yeah. And so that really stood out to me about just this kind of battle of the brains and, and who's going to win that. That's maybe that's the the question we can ask the live, live audience. Like, how do you win against when, when you have a thousand smart engineers or millions of smart engineers out there, kind of whose job is to get you to click on stuff? Like, can you win? How do you do that? I don't know
0: they have all the data and they've got algorithms that are often a lot smarter than us and they know the human psychology so okay so the first solution that we're sharing with people to trick yourself into shopping less and hopefully spending less maybe nothing is to make it harder by not having your credit card numbers in there already because if you're running around you can just click buy um, you're going to buy it, but if you have to actually stop what you're doing, take out your credit card and reinstall it every time, that's a big barrier for a lot of people. Second, zoom out and take a look at your spending habits more generally. Are there certain patterns to your impulse shopping? Are you more likely to do it during certain times of the day? For example, Vernush Charabi, the host of the So Money podcast, and by the way, a friend of mine, says that she is most likely to shop on Instagram right before going to sleep. So, she makes sure to leave her phone in another room. And this is the author saying, I have a similar problem. I tend to buy things when scrolling through my phone before getting up in the morning. So now I put my phone in the kitchen at night. Another friend of mine told me she often overspends on Fridays when she feels like she's earned it by getting through the week. So she temporarily disables her Instagram account every Thursday night. What do you think about that?
1: I I love it. I I love it. Little hacks, and they're going to be personal for everybody. Like, my I have my own hack that I've been working on. I'm not doing this that great, but I have a digital sunset. So, like, I, I have a trouble sleeping if I'm looking at the cell phone or looking at. So, I have 10:30 p.m. The phone goes off, the computer goes off. You know, I can look at a Kindle and read a Kindle without you know being connected. But I think those kind of hacks are kind of what we're talking about in this battle of the minds. That you've got to create algorithms during your best willpower times when you're really thinking well and you're not. Sleepy, sleepy or t- you know whatever, and say this is what I'm going to do if this, then that, if this happens and it's ten thirty, the phone goes off, or like just so some of those examples you gave I thought were very good good good, helpful type algorithms that we can build into our our habits
0: and there are tools to do that on most phones. you can set it to um go into certain modes in for certain <clears throat> periods of time. you can sunset it as you said, this woman that knows she's going to shop on Fridays can turn off the shopping apps Mm -hmm. and make it that much, much more difficult to get to them on a Friday. Let's take some comments from our audience. We have Melissa here commenting, don't let yourself fall into the trap. Track your debt savings. What do you think about that?
1: Tracking yeah, I, I, I think tracking's a big deal. And that's another easy one with technology. I mean, you can use some of the, I think we, my wife and I use Mint as our tracking. And so we, we just pay attention to it. And it's not as hard now because it imports all your, your data for better or worse. You know, it knows what you're doing, but I think tracking's a big deal. It's awareness.
0: Yeah, that's why we love our sponsor Chiller, that we're going to talk about later because that helps you track everything in a customized spreadsheet. So it really lays everything out for you, so you can Perfect. see. Perfect. Ryan is here. Ryan says, "Tune out the noise and enjoy the journey."
1: <laughs> I love it. Yes. Yeah. yeah the, the, some of these, and some of these algorithms, these uh, recommendations, are ways to tune it out. You know, turning. Sometimes you just got to unplug. You got to unplug the matrix and you get get out of there. So having times to unplug is my way of tuning it out.
0: Yes. Just keep the voice of Farnoosh Tarabi in your head and just say, <laughs> I'm going to put the phone in a different room and make it that much harder. But it's, it is hard to do because we use the phones for other things that we take for granted. Like I mm-hmm. use my phone as an alarm in the morning. Now I could just buy, and maybe I will, um, <laughs> an alarm clock that's just – a just only an alarm clock. You can do that. And then you can not have an excuse why you have to have your phone in the room. I don't shop in the morning or at night, but I'm definitely on social media, probably more than I should be. And I'll Mm -hmm. often say, well, it's because, well, I have to do my job. I have to work on promoting my two podcasts. I have to communicate with people. I have to be available if I get a message that's sort of urgent with a client. So I've got my phone in there, but maybe it's okay to put an out of office on there for a few hours, right?
1: Yep. I think so. I I, I think... T- today, today's work is we have got to find these blocks of time to do what Cal Newport calls deep work. And so that's that's important too. Responding to people quickly is important. But you know, 20 years ago, people didn't respond in 10, 10 seconds to, to a comment from a, a client. They still had clients, they still served them. So I think I think it's a kind of a balance. We've gotten so instant now that sometimes we we need to just give ourselves a break and get ourselves a gap between responding to people.
0: All right, let's finish out the article that I'm going to take one more audience comment. Taking stock of your finances can also help you realize you don't have to stop shopping cold turkey. Perhaps your budget can allow for one unplanned purchase within a certain dollar limit per week. Um, And the altar says, quote, anything you can do to minimize the amount of self-control you need to, to exert is a good thing. If you can make hard and fast rules that guide your purchasing behavior, but also license you to do it occasionally, you may have an easier time keeping it under control impulse shopping isn't always bad after all, just like Instagram itself. It's only problematic when it gets out of hand. (laughs) And I love this last comment that we're going to take from Dylan. He says, put things in your online cart and wait a day or two. If you don't remember to go back, you likely didn't need it. You may even get emailed a discount code to finish your transaction if you wait.
1: That's perfect that's another one of those algorithms. Like I've had some, a lot of the frugal community that I'm part of online and the fire community that they have these, these kind of rules for themselves. Wait 72 hours before you make a big purchase. no matter what it is, if it's over a hundred bucks, I always, you have to wait. And that's one of those rules that can really, you can still buy it. It's like the article said, you don't have to not buy it. You just have to wait. And your, your own mind will do the job of telling you whether you really need to buy that or not.
0: Very well said, let's go to takeaways you're going to be up first Chad
1: all right uh, my takeaway goes back to technology that hey are you there's people out there who are fighting for your attention they're fighting for your dollars and if you don't like the pattern that you you find yourself in and you want to push back against that you've got to you've got to think about it you've got to create habits or algorithms we call them, and you've got to do that when you're not in the kind of the heat of looking at Instagram and scrolling through stuff you've got to do it when you're quiet. You're thinking about it on your own. You're very deliberate about it. And there's a lot of good examples in today's show of the type of habits we could all start.
0: Yes. Tuning out the noise and focusing on just what you need and what is what matters to you.
1: Exactly. Well said.
0: <laughs> My takeaway, much more simple and sort of a final um, idea in how to cope with this idea of shopping too much. The truth is, if you have a splurge that you regret, return the item (laughs) it can sometimes be that simple it can feel like it's a pain in the neck especially if the item is big and unwieldy but it came in a box probably if you were buying it online Mm -hmm. so you can just put it back in the box with the mailing label and get rid of it and get so
1: simple so simple i love you i love simple solutions listen to bobby
0: why that one wasn't in the article. But I guess the idea is that's sort of an after you shop. The idea from the piece Mm -hmm. was that you don't do the shopping in the first place. But the truth is, unlike some other money mistakes that we all make, if you over shop in most cases, obviously not final closeout sales where there's no returns, but in most cases, you can often return it and worst case you can sometimes just return it for credit at the store but maybe you can get something that you're going to need for real that you won't regret or maybe you need to buy somebody a gift things like that so there's ways to work around it but that's my suggestion so i love it yeah let's talk though i think the audience made a really good point about tracking our spending and that's part of why we love tiller and that is our sponsor here at money with friends for this episode tiller helps you manage your money 10 times faster With a spreadsheet, it is the only service that connects your banks to Google Sheets and Excel with your daily spending, transactions, and balances. Perfect for tracking your spending. And when you're over shopping, it's going to come up right in Tiller, my friends. So you can see it there. And you know what? If it's messing with your budget, go return the items. (laughs) Unlike financial apps that force you to compromise, spreadsheets are fully customizable for your needs. Tiller makes them even better with automatic daily feeds of your spending. Like when you overshop, are we reinforcing that point enough here? <laughs> Balances and <laughs> transactions, tiller eliminates data entry, multiple account logins, and CSV files, because we know you're not going to do that. Simply connect your banks once to see your transactions automatically updated each day. Basically, Chad, you set it up once and you are. Done for a free two-month trial that is a month longer than you get if you don't use this link. Go to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash chiller for more info and that free trial. And remember that it is on the Stacking Benjamins website because Money with Friends is part of the Stacking Benjamin's family of podcasts. And by the way, you can get more information about Money with Friends at Money with You can also see Chad's contact information, bio, learn about his podcast, his courses all of his adventures and business ventures along with (laughs) our other seven money friends for this season of money with friends. Also, please follow us on our socials. We're having a lot of fun with our quizzes. We love hearing from you guys. we got great feedback on different um, surveys that we've run. So please follow us at money friends pod on both Twitter and Instagram. And while you're there, do not shop. How's that Chad?
1: I love it. Well, I'm glad I'm listening to the show because I'm checking out Tiller. I didn't know they did all that. And here I am getting all educated. That. So I, I love know. it.
0: <laughs> Definitely part of the plan to trick yourself into spending <laughs> less. It all comes together here on Money yes. with Friends. Yes. time for the big idea.
1: Hey, Bobby, what's the big idea?
0: I'm going to go first so you can have the final word. because you. Best, right? right.
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> Mine is kind of short and sweet compared to what I usually do. And apropos, because it is the little things that can make a big difference, a little change or what seems like a little change on the surface, just letting one more number factor into mortgage, into the mortgage process can make a huge difference in who can buy a house and how affordable it is and little changes we make in our behavior. Just sleeping with a phone, for example, in another room, like my friend Farnoosh Sharabi can make a huge difference in how much money we spend unintentionally. Little things add up.
1: I like that. And I think I'll build upon that and say, you know, technology's been the theme a lot today and how that's affecting credit scores, how it's affecting our purchasing. And but I, I think, you know, we think so much about technology, but really money comes back to behavior, our behaviors, our our personal habits. That's really what it comes down to. Even credit scores are really just tracking our habits. And so, you know, you can't get away from the fact of just looking at What are you doing? What are your habits? What are you doing? When are you turning your phone off? When are you checking your mail? And so Mm -hmm. I just I love I kind of love that I I love that when we get better at better at our money, we're also getting better at our as a person. We're improving ourselves. We're getting better every day. So I I think that's encouraging, and that's my big takeaway from today.
0: I think that's. Very well said. Thank you so much, Chad. One of my habits is listening to your podcast. Tell us more about what's going on there and with your course and everything else. Because now you are back from Ecuador. <laughs> your kids are going back to school. Exactly. You <laughs> back to school, back to school, controlled shopping.
1: Yes. Yeah, back, it's back to work for me. And my, well, what, I, what I do and what I love doing is teaching. So uh, my podcast, I feel like as, as much as anything, I'm just trying to help people and teach about real estate investing, about financial independence. So I'm back to two episodes a week. I do a main episode on Monday, and then I do an Ask Coach shorter episode on Thursday. So if you have questions, you can go to my site and submit questions. And that's where I answer questions is on my Ask Coach episode. And I also teach a a course every fall and spring called Real Estate Start School. So these are for people who are beginners or people trying to get back in the real estate investing game. I help people kind of walk step by step through how to get started inside of a community of people who help them who are also getting started and it's a lot of fun. I can't wait to, to jump into the next class and start teaching.
0: It's going to get very crowded there, Chad, because <laughs> people with the rates so low and certainly the sentiment is that rates are going to continue to stay low and maybe go even lower. I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of opportunity that people are interested in getting into real estate and uh, learning more about how to earn passive income although well, it's not really as passive as some people think you work not always
1: hard. not it's always you work
0: pretty hard <laughs> yes but you got to know what you're doing going into it so i think it's really important to educate yourself before you leap into any new ventures so good luck with the course and thank you visions to people that sign up and can get in hopefully you won't run out of space
1: appreciate that
0: <laughs> well thank you so much for joining us
1: thanks for having me it's great to be back and and hope everyone has a wonderful week
0: Great. And Chad, will be back in about four weeks for one more appearance on Money with Friends. And then we're going to have a whole new cast of Friends in the fall. So thank you so much. And thanks to everyone for joining us on this edition of Money with Friends.
1: This show is created and hosted by Joe Salcihai and Bobby Rebel, and is a joint venture of BRK Media LLC and Stacking Benjamins LLC, copyright 2019. Our engineer is the amazing Steve Stewart. And for a list of our friends who appear on the podcast, head to our website, moneywithfriendspodcast.com. You can also check out our schedule for upcoming recording sessions so you can join us and be part of the show. As with anything, remember you shouldn't take advice from any of us or any other video or podcast without first talking to your financial advisor and that the people in this episode are here for your and their entertainment purposes only. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and we'll see you back here next time with a real episode of Money with Friends.